If you would, please take your Bibles out and turn them over to the book of Daniel, where we resume our study this morning. It has been a few weeks and we've been in Daniel, so I'm glad to be able to get back. We find ourselves at a pivotal moment in Daniel 3. Of course, how many times have I said that in all my preaching, everything's a pivotal moment, but this is, in this particular narrative, it is pivotal. Uh, if you remember when we were here last in Daniel, and we would look just specifically at idolatry, and what idolatry demands from us, what it, how it works its way, or how idolatry works in general, the counterfeit nature of it, and the death that it brings. And so when we're, when we're dealing with idolatry, we're always we're faced with uh, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, so to speak. We can either bow down to that idol and give ourselves to that idol and experience death, or we can follow Christ, and we might, our bodies might be killed in, rejection that, in rejecting that idolatry, but our souls will be cemented in heaven, not because we've done the right thing, but because the Holy Spirit working in us is guiding us to a greener pasture, a better shore. And so Daniel, I love that Daniel's just constantly dealing with idolatry, constantly. And it's not, it's not should not be lost on us in modern culture, of course, we don't have big totem poles out on planes to go and bow down to, but we do have things in our lives that we build up and we give them the place of, of God in our lives and, and we seek to serve those things thinking somehow our service to that thing is going to make our lives somehow richer or better and it never does. It always leads to emptiness and death. And so when we're looking at Daniel, one of the things that's thrilling is to see how do we respond in the face of idolatry, and when we make the choice for Yahweh, when we make the choice for Christ, will there be consequences? Probably. Will it cost us something? Probably. Will it be better for us in the long run, in, in, in eternity? Absolutely. And so it just comes down to this idea that if you're in Christ this morning, if you call Christ Lord this morning... He's called you out of this world not merely to sit on the laurels of Christ on the sidelines and do nothing and cheer on other people, but to make your stand, to make your stand when it's hard, to make your stand when it hurts, to make your stand when grief is near, to make your stand when you know it might cost you everything. And thank God there have been people in history who made that stand knowing it might cost them everything. Thankful to the reformers who stood in the face of great persecution, who knew that at any moment their stand could cost them their life, but their life was a small payment in return to the life of Christ at work in them and for them to proclaim the truth. I challenge you, I challenge me, that that would be our heart as well. This morning, we find ourselves here in Daniel 3, the the narrative of the fiery furnace, it is a very familiar story to most people, most people at least who are maybe not all that familiar with the Bible have at least heard this story. So that's where we are this morning, looking at the fiery furnace. Our text for study today is Daniel chapter 3, verses 8 to 18. Let's now hear the word of God. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, 
and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing. Please now pray with me. Father, thank you. Oh, thank you for this picture. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for the Spirit who gives us boldness to make our stand. Father, may we make our stand. May we make our stand not by our strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit rooted in your word. I pray this word would seek deeply into our hearts and change us from the inside out. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. Having spoken of the Reformation just a few moments ago, there's a story a man by the name of Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was an English reformer. Hugh Latimer lived during the reigns of King Henry VIII, Edward VI, and Queen Mary Tudor, who would later be known in history as Bloody Mary for her uh, killing of, of Protestants and people who were in her enemies. Hugh Latimer had an opportunity to preach before King Henry VIII, and so he took it. And he preached boldly before King Henry VIII, and in his preaching, he was very passionate. He spoke about sin and conviction. He spoke about God's truth, and it offended the king. The king was mad, bothered, probably convicted, but thought that maybe Latimer had overstepped the line. Being the gracious man that Henry VIII was, he decided that he would give Latimer an opportunity to redeem himself. He invited him back the following week for the opportunity for him to cool his jets a little bit and kind of back off his message and maybe offer the king an apology. Hugh Latimer came before King Henry VIII, took out his Bible, he opened to preach, and he preached the exact same sermon that he had preached the week before. It is said he not only preached the exact same sermon that he had preached the week before, but he preached it with even more gusto because the fear of man was not going to shape how he proclaimed the truth of God. What a powerful story. Eventually, Hugh Latimer was killed. He was killed by Queen Mary. He was killed by Queen Mary because he denied the the Roman Catholic view of um, the Lord's Supper, and so he was burned at the stake as a heretic for standing his ground, for sticking to Scripture, for making his stand. I don't think we're all going to be burned at the stake, but I tell you what, it thrills my soul when I read of that type of commitment to truth. When we look at the story and the themes of Daniel chapter 3, especially these passages we've just read, it's, com- it's consistent with what we see repeatedly in this book, right? 
We see culture and pagans trying to subvert the people of God, trying to press them in ways that they're not supposed to go, trying to establish their own supremacy and make God's people bow down to things that are less than God. And so we see this. It comes up again and again in Daniel. Now, if we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here, these three Judean men, we could easily have a wrongly justify a little bit of capitulation on their part. Well, if, if we bow, they would say, if we bow, we would ensure our position. And why is our position important? Because we have influence at court. We can influence the king in positive ways, so maybe it would be okay if we just bow just this once. Or, hey, we are three Judean men. Our people are in exile in Babylon. Maybe if we just bow just this once, we can stay in a position to be a help to them. So you can see real pragmatic reasons why maybe a little bit of bowing wouldn't be such a bad thing, Right? They could have bowed. They could bow. And it might help them pragmatically. But of course, what does faithfulness look like, beloved? What does faithfulness to God look like? It looks like in places where it would be really easy to bow that we stand. It looks like in places where it would be much simpler to just capitulate that we remain firm. It looks like in places where it would be easier to soft-pedal the message that we proclaim boldly. That's what faithfulness to God looks like. It is the fruit of something that the Spirit is doing inside of us that is absolutely supernatural, i.e., when Hugh Latimer was led to the stake, he had a song on his lips, not because he was nuts and not because he was completely unaware of what was about to happen, but because a power at work inside of him could not be quelled or quenched by flames. And whatever those flames were going to do, they paled in comparison to the power of the Holy Spirit at work in this man who was given to Christ. Daniel, it repeatedly forces us to deal with this choice between ease, what is easy, and faithfulness, what is right. We're going to see this again in Daniel chapter 5. We're going to see this again in Daniel chapter 6. The same things, these same ideas that come to the forefront. God has promised us redemption in Christ. If you're in Christ this morning, if you trust in him alone for salvation, you are redeemed. But God also calls us to obedience in all things, whether temporary deliverance comes or not. That is not a promise. God doesn't say he'll get you out of every sticky circumstance, every hard ordeal that you're going to get to skate on by because, hey, we have Jesus. No, no, no. In fact, many are the ordeals or hardships we will face because we have Jesus. And though we greatly desire deliverance, beloved, it is a secondary issue. It is a secondary issue. I like to be delivered. I don't like to walk through hard times. I don't like to suffer. And yet, my deliverance from the suffering is not always God's greatest good. Sometimes God sends us into the heart of suffering so that we might know nothing but his grace moment by moment. Obedience is primary. What is obedience? Doing what we know is right, no matter what the outcome is. Doing what we know is right, no matter what the outcome is. So with those thoughts in mind, there's a central point we need to see together, and it's this. God's will is obedience, even if deliverance doesn't come. God's will is obedience, even if deliverance doesn't come. One of the more unique figures in Scripture, uh, he's a fascinating man to me, is John the Baptist. Uh, He has such a a cool beginning where you have uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth who seem to be not able to have children. God gives them John the Baptist. 
You see, we hear of John the Baptist leaping in the womb when Mary draws near with Jesus in her womb. But we also see of a man who his whole life, he knew that his ministry was pointing to somewhere else. His whole life, he knew that his ministry, his life, was pointing somewhere else. He was bold. He called, like Jesus, he called the Pharisees vipers, snakes. He was bold. He, before King Herod, said, you are in sin, sir. Your relationship with your brother's wife is inappropriate and wrong before God. Confronted a king. And, of course, his boldness ultimately cost him his life. He was killed. He was executed. We remember the story. He was beheaded, and his head was given to the daughter of Herod as a gift, as a gift at a party. And all the things that he did, one of the things he said, it constantly stands out to me. You hear it come out in my prayers. I must decrease, the Baptist said, and he must increase. Speaking of himself being decreasing and Christ and his character and his glory increasing. I love that he lived his life with that motto, with that truth before him, and he gave everything for that truth. This morning as we're looking at this, one of the things we cannot move away from when we read the 11 verses that we just read is this bold trust that is completely on display. We see a bold trust that that's all you can say about it is it's a trust and it's bold. It is a bold move that these three men make. I mean, when they tell him, we don't have to answer you. We're clear. What you've seen is true. That's us. We don't even have to say anything else about it. Beloved, that's powerful. It's bold. It's trusting. It's faith-filled, and it's faithful. When we, when we, so when we think about this, thinking about obedience, that's what they did. They were obedient. We understand that obedience may cost us everything, but it's right. I mean, we've already said this a few times. I won't continue to repeat it, but obedience may cost everything, but it's right. When you look at the breakdown of the verses I just read, essentially 8 to 12, verses 8 to 12, are giving us what is the problem. What is the issue here in the text? This whole narrative revolves around, around this, uh, the image, people bowing, and the judgment if they refuse to bow. So the problem is that these three Jewish men, they stand accused of insubordination. They were given a direct command by the state, by Babylon, and now they stand accused of not following the state's orders. So they have rebelled in the name of faithfulness to their God. Now, when we get here, right in verse 8, in the Aramaic, the certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused them. So this is not just a normal accusation. The way that the, the Scripture adds this word malicious to it, we need to understand that's kind of giving you some insight into intent. They're not just trying to point out a fault. They hate these men. They want them dead. They, they want them to get thrown into that burning, fiery furnace. And so they're coming not out of concern for their gods, not out of concern for their king. They are coming with malice. Very familiar. We live in a culture where people hardly ever come without malice anymore, especially if they disagree with you. They're coming with malice. Often. That's what's happening here. They're not coming colloquially friendly. Hey, we're concerned. They're coming with hatred in their heart. And so we need to understand that. What are they charging these men with? They're charging these men with the refusal of obedience. So you've got a kind of a, a, a little ironic twist. We herald them or we celebrate them because they were obedient. They're saying, no, 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 they weren't obedient. 
They've openly defied Nebuchadnezzar. They've openly defied the state. They wouldn't worship the state. Because let's think about this. The image, which remember, we're not told what it was. So really, we don't know. It could have been a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. It could have been a statue of a god. It just could have been a big golden pole. We don't know exactly what it was. So what are we trying to do? What we do know is that Nebuchadnezzar was establishing the greatness of Babylon. And so, yes, he's inviting these men, or he's inviting these people, not inviting commanding them to be worshipers at the feet of the state. The state is the God. The state is your God. The state is the arbiter of truth. The state tells you what to do, when to do it, how high to jump. And we're not trying to argue against righteous and good common sense laws. We're talking about when you go beyond that and you say the state is God. That's what Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar had done within Babylon. And these three Jewish men had decided we won't worship the state. We won't capitulate to all the pressure. We're just not going to do it. We're going to stand firm. Now, we look at these first few verses here. I won't bother reading them all. We've got the malicious accusations. We know they've come. The real question is, is why do they do this? Out of the myriads of people, you need to understand, somebody was watching these three men to see if they would do it. Why? Why would they do it? Let's go back to chapter 1 just real briefly. Remember, who outshined even all the Chaldeans and magicians and the wise men and the sorcerers and astrologers? These three Judeans did. Daniel did. Those three Judeans and Daniel ended up getting special appointments to special places of power that these Chaldeans thought, that's ours. We deserve that. These are our people. Why are we being surpassed by these foreigners, these conquered people? They're nothing to us. We should have that. Now, what I'm doing right now is I'm speculating a little bit because the Scripture doesn't tell us why they did it. I'm just saying the most reasonable thing to me as a person studying this looks at jealousy, pride, the same things that are alive and well in Nebuchadnezzar, jealousy and pride. It seems consistent that that would be alive in his advisor. So these men, these detractors are jealous for position. They're jealous for power. But let me show you something. When we think about a pagan human condition, when we think about a godless culture, it is true in every single generation that's walked the earth. How meaningless must life be to them that they are willing to have three men incinerated for nothing more than petty jealousy? And they will do it unconscionably and not lose a wink of sleep over it. Beloved, we understand that when we, we look at the culture of, of death, especially in the one we live in now, we, we sometimes can think, well, no, the world has never seen a world like this. The world has never seen where we are so willing to kill children. I'm telling you, it has been alive since human sin, since humans and sin have walked this earth. These men show that they have zero sanctity for life, that life is meaningless because they're willing to take the life of these men purely for gain. Beloved, when you see this, we see the world's view of life, and I'm telling you, it is godless and evil. When we are willing to trade life so cheaply for convenience, for power, for pleasure, or for some sort of gain, that is godless. It's not just relegated to the 21st century. We have seen this again. We saw this in World War II. We saw this in Stalin's Russia. We've seen, we've seen this in China. We've seen this in the Middle East. Go back, you know, as much as the Crusades get so much bad press, and, and for right reasons they do, do sometimes, go back and read about the rise of the Ottoman Empire. Also, a total lack of regard for human life. 
It is a godless worldview. It is a world worldview, and we see it right here in Babylon. But it's interesting. This I want to read to you, verse 12. This is what they say in their accusations. There are certain Jews whom you appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, if we take a step back, that's very reminiscent of Adam telling God, we know that woman you put in here, she's the one who ate the fruit. You can hear a small tone of accusation in their voice. What's these men that you appointed? See, had you appointed Chaldean men, state men, men of loyalty, we wouldn't be in this situation. It is an accusation. It's a vindication. They feel vindicated. Nebuchadnezzar, you chose the wrong men. The implicit idea here is we Chaldean men, we're better. We're more suited. We're more faithful. We're the men who are showing loyalty to you. Look at these guys. They're not. These foreigners, these Jews, they make it a point to... Uh, note their heritage. These Jews, they're the ones who are not doing what they ought. And there again, beloved, don't you see the beautiful irony here? As they stand accused for doing what's right, they're, they're being condemned. We see this again and again, but where we see a pinnacle of that is in the cross in Jesus who embodies that. So they are under, or they're under accusation let me tell you something that I love. Who points this out to Nebuchadnezzar? These Chaldean people do. You know what that tells us about what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did? Is they didn't make a show about it. They didn't say, hey, listen up. Everybody's bowing down. We ain't doing it. And I, they didn't, there was no, you know, there was no, in America, what would happen is there would be books written about how not to bow before your idols. Or, or, or then there might be a, a conference of we shall not bow, we stand united, and they're going to be the three main speakers. Or there might be media spots where people say three ways not to bow, and so forth and so on. There was none of that. There was no show. There was no pomp. There was no circumstance. There was none of that. It was they quietly, faithfully served the Lord and were ready to take the heat if it came to it, literally. So I love the fact that it had to be pointed out to Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't go and, and protest to him. They quietly went about their business, and then they were willing to stand firm. But you know what I love about this? this is something that probably doesn't get mentioned very often. Who saw them do this? All these pagan people. All these pagans and high offices, pagan peoples around who would have been at court, saw that these young men, they won't bow. They won't bow to gain power. They won't bow to gain money. Heck, they won't bow to save their own lives. What a testimony it must be to other people when people filled with conviction, though despised by some, make their stand. Some people will hate it. A lot of people will hate it. But those who are the lords who see it will be thrilled, will be renewed, will be even drawn to it. You know, beloved, there's something that we, you and I need to remember, that there's always something bigger than threats, and even death. I don't welcome death. I don't want to die. Of course, I want to grow old and see my children grow, and I want to see my children's children. I want to spend time with Rachel. I want us to enjoy you know, life together. All these things I want, of course I want those things. I desire them greatly. But I do know 
that if death should come and threats that will come, something's bigger than all those things. His name is Yahweh. His name is the Lord. See, what they do here and what this whole narrative is, is kind of aiming at is they're making a statement. Now, it's a quiet protest. They're not, they're not making a bold, big scene, but they're making a statement. And what that statement is is that when we are living for God or when we are given to God, we are living for a higher aim. I'm not just trying to live to save my life. I'm actually living for something larger than that. That when we're, that we have a larger purpose and that we have something that's beyond ourselves, that we're not just living for the moment, we're not just working for the weekend, as the song says. We're not just living for pleasure. There's something bigger. Can we have fun on the weekends? Can we enjoy things that are pleasurable? Yes, please do it. Ecclesiastes talks to us about that. But there's something bigger than those things. See, scriptures call us to live undaunted. And, and not because there's no threats. So we're not undaunted because there are no threats. We're undaunted, rather, because we're held by the grace of God. We're held by the grace of God, and something larger than threats and death is working in our minds and hearts. When you look at the remainder of this paragraph we've read, we kind of see the response. So we, we've got the problem laid out very clearly. They're not going to bow down, and that's the problem. Nebuchadnezzar's upset. The scheming Chaldeans are trying to get the men killed. And it seems like their plan is probably going to work. We have the thir verses 13 to 18, though it's all kind of looking at the response. And what's interesting here is if you follow the text, there's two responses here that you can look at, you can compare. You can compare the response of Nebuchadnezzar to the whole situation, and you can, you can compare that with the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the whole situation. So we're told right there in verse 13 that then Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So he's in a furious rage. So we've got his first response, his rage, his fury. Why? Why is he so upset? Pride. He said, I'm the king, he says. I'm the king. You do what I say. Pride. This is the image I've told you that you worship now. So you worship this image. You do what I say. It's pride, you see. He's prideful. He's arrogant. And what can we see that's deeper? What is, so, let's, so we're talking about the physical realm, emotional realm, pride. What is the spiritual realm to this? Because when we look at these things, there's always different realms. There's the physical, the spiritual, emotional. The spiritual realm of this is a simple statement. Idolatry suffers no rivals. You follow this idol, or we're going to make it hard on you. <laughs> That's it. You follow this idol, and in this case, or we're going to kill you. And so the spiritual realm is idolatry will give you no quarter. It will give you no peace. It will not let you off the hook easily. Its aim is to destroy. We see the proliferation in this chapter specifically of Nebuchadnezzar who says, is it true, O Shadrach, and this is verse 14, that you will do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And again, of course, we can't miss kind of the humorous irony that's there. My gods, the image that I stood up. What are we dealing with? We're still, still dealing with an image that's just an image. We're still dealing with an image that can't talk, it can't, it can't perform miracles. It can't multiply bread. It can't even sing a song. 
It can't motion to you to come this way. It can't do any of those things. So in some senses, it's weak. But we also know that there is a demonic power in idolatry that Paul talks about in the New Testament that reminds us that though idolatry is powerless against the Lord, there is a power at work through it. Let's call it, if you're in Christ this morning, I want to tell you something encouraging. It's actually kind of an empty power. It's powerful. Nebuchadnezzar was powerful. He had the power to take their life. He had the power to make life hard for them. But to what end? Could it actually change their hearts? Could it actually change their souls? Could it actually, even in this case, even change their minds? No. We're not denying that there was power, but you see it's empty. Why is that encouraging to you and to me? Because if you're in Christ this morning and Christ lives in you, you have a power at work in you that renders all other powers empty compared to him. And so what does that mean? That means when somebody or something is whispering in your ear, making you think if you'll just bow down this one time, life will be easier or better or somehow more pleasurable, there's a power at work in you that says, get up, it will not. It's called the Holy Spirit. And it's this beautiful thing. Beloved, what is the world seeking from you and from me? The world is seeking acquiescence to its philosophies, to capitulation to it. Every concession that the world asks for, is there's a purpose there. Bit by bit, sell away your truth, give away your birthright, as Esau did for a bowl of stew, and in the end, still be hungry and left empty. These are not little capitulations. These are not little acquiescences. These are not little concessions Hey, if you just concede here, it'll be easier for everybody. Should we be jerks? No. Should we love people? Yes. Should we speak the truth? Yes, 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 all those things. We shouldn't be a jerk. We shouldn't concede truth either. We don't make concessions, not when it comes to the Word, because the Word is not just my opinion, and it is an objective truth that we hold to. So we have this, this they, they had it before them, we have it before us. We have this before us to either live by fear or boldly live by Scripture. We either live by fear or we boldly live by Scripture. That's our call. That's our choice. That's the choice that is constantly before us. What is the threat that they face? Well, you know it. It says, if you're ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made in verse 15, well and good. But if you don't, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, we live in a culture where cancellation is just high on the list. That's cancellation right there. That's about as canceled as you can get. Be burned to a crisp in a, in a big brick kiln, which is probably what it was. So the, the threat with the blazing, fiery furnace in this, in this way is a threat of cancellation of the largest sort. You either do what I say or I'm canceling you forever. You're going to be dead. You're going to be out. Because you see, the world thinks that the most precious thing that you and I have is this body, this life. And let me, let me disabuse you of that notion. That is not the most precious thing you have. Life is beautiful. Life is precious. But the most precious thing you have is a living relationship with Jesus Christ that cannot be taken. Not by anybody. If Christ is in you this morning, he is in you. And he's there. 
and fire and cancellation and threat and death and all sorts of of, um, persecution and all sorts of, of attack. They can't take that. They can't. That's there, that's solid. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are either bow down and worship or die, period. That's what the choice is before you. And beloved, that has been true throughout uh, human history for the church. It remains true to this day. I love here what he says in his arrogance. And who is the God in verse 15 who will deliver you out of my hands? You got him. Who and who is the God who is going to deliver you out of my hands? Why this is important, because you're seeing something larger at work here. I've mentioned this before. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told that the seed of the woman would be at an enmity with the seed of the serpent, and that it would be a battle that culminates with the coming of Christ and the crushing of Satan's head through the cross and giving life to his people. Well, we see Nebuchadnezzar and these three Judean men locked in this battle of the seed of the woman being at loggerheads with the seed of the serpent. Nebuchadnezzar re- uh, representing the seed of the serpent. He's not just challenging these men here. He's not just challenging these men about their truth. He's challenging Yahweh. He's challenging the Lord. How good are you, God? How good are you, Yahweh? How powerful are you? Can you save these three boys from that fire that's over there? Can't see you. We can see that. And so the world will play on our fears. Love, what will you do? You don't wait till then to decide. We decide now. The old hymn, I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. No turning back. No turning back. That decision is not made when you're between the hammer and the anvil. That decision is made now so that when we stand between the hammer and the anvil, we say, strike, because I'm not turning back. That's what these young men did. Nebuchadnezzar is not just challenging them. He's challenging Yahweh. He's challenging the truth of God with a lie of Satan. We do well to press in here, not skipping over the verses. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we, need not, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. There's faith here. There's boldness. No need to answer. You know why? We don't need to answer you. Our stance is clear. We don't need, in other words, he's trying to give them an opportunity to think about it one more time. Why don't you just give it one more thought? We don't need to think about it more. We don't need to think about it more. We know what our answer, and our answer is the same. But it's interesting how they answer him. So we start, why why is their stance clear? Well, they have faith. What is their faith then? The ability of God. We won't bow down because God is able. (laughs) God is able. He didn't say he might be able or he could save us from this. God is able. He's able to do exactly what we need him to do right here, right now. And in fact, they even say, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Wow, what is that about? What are they getting at here? We need to understand that they had a larger view of their faith in the Lord than sometimes Christians do. How will they be delivered? Either God is going to save them by miracle 
or they're going to go into that fiery furnace and be incinerated, and God is going to deliver them through the fire. In other words, whatever happens from this moment forward, God is delivering us out of your hand. Either he's going to save us and show us power, or he's bringing us home, and we are not under your power anymore. It's a powerful statement. They are recognizing either something miraculous is going to happen or we're going to get burned up. But either way, we don't belong to you. It's a powerful, powerful, powerful statement. So by miracle or by death, God will keep his children, either calling us home to himself or preserving us. You know what I love about their statement? So if we could say this. I don't normally like to bifurcate the will of God, but in this instance, I'm going I'm to bifurcate it just as an example of something. You and I, we know the revealed will of God. We absolutely do. What is the revealed will of God? It's right here, right in his word. We have it. You know what God has told you to do. We have, even if you just had the Torah, just the Ten Commandments, you would have a sense of what God wants us to do. Now, you and I don't always know the circumstantial will of God. We prayed for the Wilsons in the hopes that God would extend their time in Manchester. We had no way of knowing if indeed that was God's will. We prayed that it was so, and by his mercy, it was so. You and I don't always know what a circumstance is going to bring. We don't always know how circumstances are going to play out, if we're going to get the thing we think we want or if we're going to find ourselves wanting. But what do we know? What do we know? Well, what we do know is that no matter what happens in those circumstances, that we are called to obedience. We are called to follow God. We are called to do the right thing. We are called to be holy. We are called to be just. We are called to be circumspect and wise and and faith-filled. Those are the things that we do know. And so that the circumstance doesn't change how I live, it may affect it because we are human beings who struggle with sin and sometimes we allow circumstances to affect us more deeply than they should. God knows I do. But the obedience, the holiness, the things that God has said, this is my will for you, we do know that. And that's how we should live. When we think about it, the obedience, the holiness, and I always like to make sure I'm clear on this, that's not so that we can be saved and loved by Jesus. The obedience, the holiness flow out of our salvation and the fact that Christ loves us. And this is one small way we say, I love you too, through obedience and holiness. Finally, but if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your God or worship the golden image. Even in the face of death, I won't deny God. Won't deny God. If you're going to kill us, kill us. But we're not going to bow down. They cling to his word. So what is their faith? Their faith is not in deliverance. Their faith is not in evading death. Their faith is in God. They're not, they don't know if they're going to get out of it because they don't know the circumstantial will of God. They think they might. They know God is able to do that. But they're saying, regardless, whether he saves us or not, we will not bow. You know what type of faith this is, beloved of God? This is the type of faith that says Jesus is king and there is no other. Jesus is king and come hell, come high water, come every other thing that's going to come at me, I will not bow because Jesus is king and there will stand. Please hear me when I tell you. I don't pretend to think that's easy. I'm not up here thinking that, well, that's all you got to do. I understand how difficult standing in a culture that wants to snatch us down is. I understand it. And yet, we are called to do it. And yet, 
We've been empowered to do it. You know, you and I, we're not called to pursue security. We're called to pursue worship. Security is a very attractive commodity. Our world is built on it. So many things now, you, pay a, you have to pay a hefty price for it, but they're trying to offer you security. We often confuse security and safety, though, with salvation. We often accuse those, or, or, or confuse those things. We think that security and safety and salvation are the same thing, and they're not. God's purpose is without a doubt to save as far as the curse is found, but he never promised security. He never promised safety. We're secure in him. We're rooted in him. We're held firm in him. But in this life, he never says, so you'll be secure. No, you'll, you'll weep. You'll grieve. You'll hurt. You'll lose. You'll fall down and get up and fall down and get up and fall down and get up and fall down. You'll be treated unfairly. You'll be mocked, be scorned. A lot of the things, all the things that Jesus before you and I, who was not worthy of those, experienced. God is not saying, come in here and you'll never have another care again. No, no, no. The world and Satan, see, they play on those fears as they seek to offer the carrot of security if we'll bow to the image. Here's, here's security. Just bow to this image and you'll have the security that you want. You see, the only result of that type of bow, of that type of life, is death, ultimate death. No, Jesus is calling you and me to stand by faith on the God who is able, on the God who is able and has delivered us through the work of the cross. Culture says bow. Jesus says rise, stand, and proclaim. And that will be costly. If you're going to rise, if you're going to stand, and you're going to proclaim, it's going to be costly. No, it will cost. Maybe it'll cost your reputation. If you're somebody that God sends out to the ends of the earth, maybe it'll cost you your life. Maybe it'll cost you a friendship or many friendships. Maybe it'll cost you a job. Maybe it'll cost you monetary gain. Maybe it'll cost you respect. Maybe it'll cost you all those things. But we have something more valuable than all those We have the pearl of great price. We have the gospel. We have the hope of Jesus living inside us if you're in him this morning. And so I say this to you. May we be bold in our faith and stand on the solid rock of Christ and live for him and say, I will not bow to the images of this world. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this time, this word. It's powerful. Thank you for the example before us in Scripture. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would help us to stand, that you would help us to proclaim, that you would help us to live boldly, openly, without apology for you. Oh, Lord, the world comes at us with accusations. They try to subdue. They try to make us concede. And, Father, may we remember we're already victorious. We're not having to win something from them. We stand victorious. We are merely proclaiming the victory. God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts, you would renew our minds, that you would strengthen our souls to say with that old hymn writer, I've decided to follow Jesus and there's no turning back, no turning back. Through Christ we pray, amen.